Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There were under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness, your graciousness, your goodness to us. And Lord, now as we come to your word, uh, you have some things that you want to impress us with, Lord, you want to teach us and you want to shape us um, with. And Lord, we ask that we would be humble before you this morning. And Lord, what we, what we are not, would you make us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And we ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, you may be seated. Well, when a couple stands before each other on their wedding day and communicate their vows to one another, followed by these words, I will or I do, they're making a promise to one another before God and in the presence of invited witnesses. The marriage ceremony in particular, the exchanging of the rings, symbolizes and solidifies that promise. The pastor then pronounces them husband and wife and looks at the groom and says, you may now kiss your bride. And then after a minute or two, they are presented to the witnesses. And then they are given a procession down the middle of all those witnesses. After which, typically, there is a big celebratory meal. See, what we often miss at a wedding, what many people miss at a wedding when they attend a wedding, or sometimes even if they are the ones getting married, is that they, they are covenanting themselves to each other through the ceremony. It's a covenant. It's an agreement. It is a promise. And friends, today, as we come to this text, we find another promise, another agreement, another Covenant. Now, I realize that, you know, Exodus 24 probably is not a premier chapter in your thinking. But in the 
outflow of the book of Exodus, this is one of the key texts. In fact, this text is so incredibly important that the book of Hebrews is referring to it over and over and over again, and we'll get to that a little later. This is a highlight of the book of Exodus. Certainly, Israel being delivered out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, is a wonderful story. It is, but it's all working to a crescendo. Remember, God said, I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that my people can meet with God in the wilderness. And here they are now, together at the bottom of a mountain to meet with God. And so it's helpful for us to do a little bit of kind of reminder of the context here. And I want to take you back to chapter 19 and just kind of walk you through in your mind what we saw there. This context is important. The people are there at the bottom or the foot of the mountain. And what we found there is that before they can come and hear from God, they had to consecrate themselves. And they are told to not come up the mountain. In fact, God tells Moses to put boundaries around the bottom of the mountain so that people don't break through and somehow rush the mountain to to meet with God because they will not know who it is actually that they are seeking to encounter. And if you remember, as the people of Israel stood at the foot of the mountain, they saw the glory of God. They saw the mountain wrapped uh, in smoke and the Lord descending on it with fire. And the whole mountain trembled and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. It was a magnificent display of a descending king. And then in chapter 20, God speaks to the people directly revealing the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words literally is what it says. And after God speaks to the people, once again there's thunder, there's lightning and smoke, and they hear the sound of the trumpet, and they turn to Moses and say, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They're beginning to understand a little bit more about this God. He's a dangerous God. He's a holy God. And they are terrified by the nearness and the presence and the voice of God. And so in chapter 21 through 23, Moses is now interacting with God and God is communicating to Moses the elements of the book of the covenant that flesh out the the Ten Commandments. And so now God has finished revealing his moral law and the case law to Moses, and we find Moses going back to the people in order to speak the words of the book of the covenant to them, and that's what happens at the beginning of chapter 24. So we're just trying to make sure we're getting the setting and how this is all coming together and the things that are driving this text. The people have have been heard by God from heaven. They've been delivered by God out of bondage in Egypt. They've been sustained by God in the wilderness. They've experienced God at the bottom of the mountain, the cloud, the earthquake, the thunder, and the trumpets. And they've been spoken to by God through Moses. And of course, we find at the end of chapter 20 and 21, these words, and they stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, as we come to chapter 24, there is an important question that we must answer. I'll say it in two ways. How can a sinful people ever expect to draw near to God? How can Israel ever expect to have anything more than an impersonal, distant interaction with their God. He's too magnificent. He's too holy. He's too powerful. He is too dangerous. And the answer to that question is found in three words. How can a sinful people ever expect to draw near to God? By invitation only. Now, friends, this is so critically important for us as Christians. Because there can be a distorted view of how we interact with God. A very casual view of how we interact with God. Friends, you cannot break into the mountain and force your way 
on the holy God of the universe. You can't set up your religion and force God into your religious box. He won't accommodate you. He is not a God to be fashioned or shaped or manipulated by the wisdom and the efforts of man. He is God and he is God alone. And we all come to him by invitation only. Now see, you and I don't make a decision to choose Christ. No, we're invited by Christ to follow him and we respond by faith and repentance. Without God's invitation, we would not look for him or know how to find him. Quite frankly, we wouldn't want to find him. Now, it might feel that we are the ones making a choice or a decision. But if that is the case, it is only because God has already been at work in our hearts to open our eyes. Now, some well-meaning people might say something like this. I don't like what you're saying, Pastor Rod. My God isn't like that. But friend, it doesn't matter what you think God is like. What matters is what God has revealed that he is like. It doesn't matter that you've formed a God of your own making or your own thinking because the tone, the theme, the emphasis of Scripture is that the only way to God is by invitation through the blood of his Son. And friends, anytime we seek to force God into our religious box, the God we are attempting to create and worship is a deceptive distortion of the one true God. And you and I should never seek to put God in our box. What we should see is the box that God puts himself into. In other words, God does have limitations. He does have boundaries that are all there because of his own wonderful, beautiful character. He is holy. What's the boundary? He cannot sin. He is just Therefore, he will always be fair. He is sovereign. Therefore, there is nothing that escapes him. He is wise. Therefore, his words are good and helpful. He is his own box. And we are called to unpack the word of God to see God as he is. But what happens is that we want a God that's fashioned to be like we want him to be. And this can happen, friends, not just with the world out there, but even within the church. We can be guilty of this, and we must say, God, show us yourself. Show us your glory. Help us to understand you as you reveal yourself to us. And we accept that to be true. Now, as we come to our text, um, with this backdrop, with this setup, I want us to draw our attention now to chapter 24 and verses 1 and 2. Because what we have here is really the, 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 the fleshing out or the, uh, the, the layout of our text. There's going to be three groups of people uh, that are going to meet with God in three different places. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Then, then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders, of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So this introductory section here, instruction from God, gives us the, the lay of the land, so to speak, the understanding of the flow of the text. We have three locations and three groups of people all moving in a direction to meet with God and to worship God. We have, first of all, the people who remain at the foot of the mountain, right? They shall not come up, the text says. And this is where we're going to find they are going to enter into a covenant with God. That's all taking place at the foot of the mountain. Then there are the leaders who go up the mountain some way. We're told they, they are worshiping still from afar, and they enjoy a meal together with God. And then Moses goes to the top of the mountain and we're told Moses alone shall come near. Where, this is where, where Moses enjoys intimacy with God. You can see the trajectory 
happening in the story from the foot of the mountain to somewhere up the mountain and Moses ultimately going to the top of the mountain and the numbers of people are decreasing as they go. So just get in your mind the flow of what's happening in this text. And so what this passage will drive home is the following. Here is the proposition. Here is what this text is screaming at us about. Our path to nearness with God comes through a covenant of blood. How do you get to God when he is so marvelous, so holy, so magnificent? You come by invitation. And what is that invitation? That invitation is by virtue of a covenant of blood. Now, theologians typically think of scriptures as having five major covenants. First of all, there's God's covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant, where he says, I will not destroy the world. This is where you have uh, the, the rainbow. Then you have the, God's covenant with Abraham, where he promises that he is going to bless the seed of his descendants. And then there's the covenant with Israel, where they agree with God to obey his laws. There's the covenant with David, where God promises that he will send a son of David. And this son will, will extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. Then there's this new covenant, God's new covenant, where Christ comes to restore his covenant to the gospel and make a way for all to be a part of his kingdom. What we have here then in our text is this third covenant. This Mosaic covenant. Now what is a covenant? A covenant is simply an agreement or a contract made by two parties. It establishes the basis of their relationship. It establishes the conditions of their relationship and the promises of the relationship as well as the consequences if those conditions are not met. Now, typically, such a covenant has three parts. It usually has an agreed-upon kind of verbal side to it, or it's written down. Then, of course, there is the, the ratification or the sealing of that covenant with a ceremony. And then it's often followed by a meal. In fact, in our culture, it used to be, you could make an agreement with a handshake, right? Right? But before the handshake took place, what would there need to be? Communication about what you're agreeing upon. The handshake was the ceremony, so to speak. And once you did that, you go together and have lunch, right? The same kind of, same kind of principle here, but kind of in a, in a smaller way. With all that backdrop in mind, let us now look at the rest of our text and discover this truth, that our path to nearness with God comes through a covenant of blood. First of all, notice the people worship from a distance. The people of Israel are still at the foot of the mountain. And now Moses comes and he speaks the words of the book of the covenant to them. Look at verse 1. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. Sorry, this is verse 3. And, and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all of the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So Moses tells the people all the words of the Lord and the rules. So we can assume here he's talking about the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. He's, he's speaking those things once again to make sure they understand this is what God is saying. This is what God is seeking to covenant them to. Right? And so he recounts those words and those rules. And the people answer. They've listened to Moses speak. They're, they're willing to do what, what God is saying they are to do. And so they, they, they verbalize their agreement. And they say, all the words of the Lord uh, that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is the first step of the covenant. And so Moses writes the words of the Lord down as a record for the covenant this agreement, this partnership with God. Secondly, the covenant is ratified. All right? Uh, so the covenant is first affirmed, then it's ratified. Or to put it a little differently, the, the people of God will now confirm their covenant by a ceremony. And let's look now at the ceremony. We'll begin reading here um, in verse 4. He rose in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars... Uh, 
according to the 12 tribes of Israel, and he set young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and, uh, and sacrificed peace offering, offerings of the oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins and half the blood and threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So here we have this ceremony. It involves an altar and it also involves 12 pillars. The altar representing God, the 12 pillars representing the tribes of Israel, people of Israel. And the conditions of the covenant here, friends, are not negotiable. And by the way, um, of those five covenants, four of those covenants were unconditional. God is just saying, this is what I'm going to do. 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 In this Mosaic covenant, it is conditional. If you do this, then I will do this. So this covenant is not negotiable. God is inviting them to accept the terms of the covenant or to reject them. God has spoken the covenant. You don't have you know, Moses or Israel coming to say, well, I don't know, we, we don't like that one about the, you know, about the lamb and the, the milk and all that kind of stuff. Let's cut that out. It doesn't make any sense. No, God says, this is what I am saying you need to do. It's one-way traffic, friends, right? And if you're concerned that man is, is here, uh, you know, has this free choice that I kind of mentioned before, this text says, yes, you do, but it is only because of God's initiative and invitation, and you would be foolish not to accept what God has put forward. Can there be any good alternative than the will of God? The answer is no. Now, we have here two types of sacrifice. Let's just hone in a little bit on that, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And this is important just to help understand the flow. The burnt offerings take an animal, and that animal is consumed completely, right? The, the peace offerings, however, parts of the animal are consumed, while other parts are then taken to be eaten as part of the ceremony and the celebration of the covenant pact. So what's implied here is that there is this, there's an agreement, there's a ratification through a ceremony followed then by ultimately a meal. And we'll see that a little bit later when we see the group of people going up the mountain too. So it's, a, it's affirmed, it's ratified, and then third, it's sealed. And it's sealed specifically by the shedding of blood. Moses dashes the blood against both the altar and the people. In other words, Moses is uniting God and the people with blood. Now just try and imagine the scene here. There's blood splattered everywhere. And blood would have gotten on their skin and on their clothes. And as such, it would have taken days to come off of their skin. Remember, they're... You know, there's no showers out in the wilderness. And it would have taken a long time for the blood stain on their clothes to disappear. They didn't have a laundromat close by. So in other words, the blood stayed with them as a reminder of this covenant. This was a bloody affair. And the ceremony would have been so vivid and memorable that it would have fixed in the minds and the hearts of the people who were participating in it. Again, look at verse 8, just to, just to reinforce what's going on here. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So it was a solemn, formal, official covenant bound by blood. Now, friends, we just want to pause and just reflect on this and kind of use our theological thinking caps and, and, and see how these elements of this covenant flesh out in the New Testament. Are there any echoes of this in the New Testament? Are there any similarities between what we see here in this text and what we read as Christians in the New Testament? And so we once again consider the covenant that is affirmed. And I would like to begin by saying 
This is what Jesus is calling for when he's instructing his disciples before they're sent out for ministry. He says in Matthew 10, 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. There's this idea of verbalizing. There's this idea of agreeing with. And the Apostle Paul reinforces this, and he says this in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, what does it mean to confess? It means to agree with God that what he is saying is right, is good. And so your confession is the fruit of your belief that God has raised him from the dead. So there is this affirmation that we see. And these are just a few uh, verses. There are other places we could turn to, too. But I just want to just tease this out a little bit. Then the covenant is ratified. And there's two accounts in the gospel that are helpful here. First, the words of declaration from John the Baptist. As he sees Jesus coming to him, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we have the words of Jesus himself declaring to the disciples why he had come into the world because they couldn't get it in their head what he had come to do. And he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's the sacrifice. Here's the ceremony. Here is what he is going to do. He's going to be that lamb. He's going to be that sacrifice. And of course, we have here this, this wonderful truth that we call the, the, the vicarious atonement of Christ. Here in, in Exodus 24, the, the, the animal was the substitute for Israel. The animal was the one, was the, was the thing that was actually receiving the, the brunt of the pain and the suffering on behalf of Israel. And the reality is when Jesus hangs on the cross and dies, we say, he died for our sin. He took our place on the cross. We deserve to be there, but he vicariously puts himself there. He is there in our place. To be vicarious means that someone is taking your place. They're in your stead. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus did. In fact, listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and the, 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 the richness of what is being said here. For our sakes, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him, that's Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin. He didn't deserve to be there, but he willfully chose to be that sacrifice. So the covenant is affirmed. The covenant is ratified. And then the covenant is sealed. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room celebrating the Passover and using that as the opportunity to institute what he would uh, now lay out for us, that's the Lord's Supper, and he turns to them, this is what he says, and I'm going to read three different passages that all are saying very much the same thing. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 24. He says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Matthew says, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then Luke clarifies it even more. And he says, this cup is poured out for you, or that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Hear what Jesus is saying. My blood. This is the covenant in my blood. This is the covenant in my blood. I not only am going to be a sacrifice, but the blood that I am going to be shedding is for you, for this new covenant. So I just want you to see that from, from Exodus 24, we just splash all the way into the New Testament with the wonderful truths and the realities of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. So we move from now the people at the foot of the mountain to the leaders who worship from afar. 
People have agreed to God's terms. They've embraced them as their own through the formality of a blood covenant. Now, 74 people, the leaders and Moses, ascend uh, the mountain while uh, they're still at a distance or uh, far from God. These leaders are the representatives of, of the people of Israel, and they ascend up, up on the mountain to some degree, some distance. We don't know exactly how, how far, but they're not at the foot of the mountain anymore. And notice in verse 9, then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Now, what is it that they encounter? It's truly remarkable, isn't it? Notice, first of all, there's a, there's a closeness to God. We're told they saw the God of Israel. But if we look carefully at the text, we don't have any description of what they saw. In other words, when, when typically when, when we have encounters like this, what people see is not necessarily a clear view of God, they see impressions of God, so to speak. It's almost like looking at an impressionistic painting, right? you got to kind of look this way and look that way and try and figure out how it is. God is, in one sense, in his appearance, um, not seen clearly. But what is seen clearly is what he is standing on, isn't it? What does it say? There was under his feet a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very... Heaven for clearness. That's another way of saying what they saw was sapphire. Clear as the sky itself. Even God's footstool is more beautiful than anything they have ever seen. And if what they're seeing under God, which is his creation, is beautiful, to be sure the God who created it is far more beautiful. And the point of that is to declare to them that God is far more magnificent than what they are seeing. God is truly holy. He is set apart. He is incomprehensible. Friends, I just, I just want to push this a little further and ask you the question, is the God that you imagine, does it, does it even come close to who he really is? And sometimes we, we limit God by our human, tangible ways that we want to somehow interact with him. And here we have this magnificent encounter they have with the God of the universe. So how do you describe God? It's a really incre incredible question, isn't it? Well, let's, let's listen to Ezekiel as he tries to do this. Ezekiel chapter 1. And just let this settle in. <laughs> Verse 26. And above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it... Uh, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the, the bow that is in the cloud on the, sky, on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. I just get what he's saying. He's trying his best to describe it. And he's saying, it, it kind of looks like. It's somewhat like, but I can't really put it into words. But I know it's magnificent, and that's why I fall on my face, because of what it is and who it is that I'm seeing here. So friends, they are welcomed in. They're invited now to this closeness to God in this particular encounter. Secondly, based on that, what's incredible in this text is that they're spared from death. It is a magnificent picture of the radiance of God, pure, clean, and bright, but there is a specter of death in these words, isn't there? The narrator says, yet he did not lay his hand on the chief of men of the people of Israel. This is a euphemism, friends, for killing someone. And so the implication 
in, of the text is that the people would expect, having had an encounter like this with God, that they would die. And that's what the prophet Isaiah is saying when he encounters God in, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5 in that vision. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I am the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What, what he's saying is, even, even if, if I am sinless, I live around sinful people. Therefore, I can't stand in the presence of God. It's done. It's over. But what God is doing here is inviting them to see some of his glory. He's initiated the meeting. He's welcoming them, welcoming them to, to come and to worship him from afar. And now having spoken, ratified, and sealed the covenant with God, he draws them to himself in particular for a meal. So we find them next sharing this meal together. And again, we, you know, the presumption here is that they took, they took the, the, the proceeds from, the, uh, from the, the sacrifices with them up onto the mountain. And here they are, joining in together with the meal. Eating together communicated acceptance, approval, and allegiance between two parties. This is the way it was in the ancient world, even in many places today. In other words, it is through the covenant that the relationships are moved from being acquaintances to being accepted as tribal family. If you go different places, that's what happens. And so it also, it also implies here one's approval of another person's behavior. Now just think about this. Sharing this meal was a problem when Jesus came on the scene, especially when Jesus was sitting down with the Pharisees, sorry, with the, with the publicans and sinners. The Pharisees took issue with that. Why? Because to sit down with them was to approve of them. That's also why there's such an emphasis on hospitality in the Scriptures because hospitality is such a great way to reach out to people, isn't it? See, here they're having this meal, this wonderful meal with God, although he's somewhat veiled. They can't quite see him. He's present. They quite, don't quite get a full understanding of who he is, but they know that they are in the presence of God. And friends, just thinking through this together, in the context of a blood covenant, Jesus invites us to share a meal with him on a regular basis. Each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're being invited to remember the joy and the intimacy of being accepted by God into his tribal family through the covenant of the blood of Christ. So hear this, the Lord's Supper isn't just a reminder of the facts of the gospel, certainly is that, but it is to enjoy the hospitality of Christ himself and to share a meal with him. My friends, just let that set in. How have you typically approached the Lord's Supper? Is it, okay, I want to remember the gospel. Okay, good. But see, he is inviting you to share a meal. And that's all coming from this covenant. Okay? So, we've seen what happens with the people at the foot of the mountain. We've seen the, the leaders, along with Moses, somewhere up the mountain. And now we want to move to Moses, who's worshiping near to God. So although these verses, verses 12 through 18, serve as a summary and somewhat of a transition from the revealing of God's law to the, the building of God's tabernacle, at least the instructions for that, they also reveal the fact that Moses is invited further up the mountain to meet with God in a more intimate manner. And so in this new section, uh, really there are two possibilities of what's happening. You, again, we talk about the flow. There, 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 you might say the structure of the text actually is, is two invitations. One begins at verse 1. The next one begins at verse 12, where he says, come up, come near, come, all right? And so the idea is that they all go, you have the people, the leaders go up. What happens next? Is Moses simply going to go up after that, or do they go back down again, and then they call it up again? Well, those first two verses give us a clue that all of this was one thing, that Moses was aware of what was going to take place. He was waiting to be invited to come up the mountain. But there's something remarkably different about what's going on in this section. Moses would personally meet with God on top of the mountain. 
And it would be a meeting that would last until chapter 32 and verse 7. All right, so we're not seeing the whole picture. We're just seeing the beginning of him going up, right? Now, of course, what happens in chapter 32 is the whole golden calf debacle, right? And that's why he comes down. Now, notice, first of all, in this section of the text uh, that it is a personal call. If you notice that in verse 1, God says to Moses, come up to the Lord. It's kind of a general statement. And then here in this text, verse, verse 12, the Lord says to Moses, come up to me. Just, just in the wording of what's going on here, there's something more personal, there's something more intimate taking place here. And of course, Moses obeys and journeys a little further with his young assistant, Joshua. And of course, our bell should be going off there, and you can kind of put a marker there. This is the second time Joshua's appeared. But it gives us at least a bit, a bit of understanding that, of how much Joshua's brought into this intimacy, into this relationship with God, as he is there assisting Moses to go up the mountain. But notice, secondly, that it is a purposeful call. And I'll drive in again at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And so what was it that God said he wanted to do when Moses got there? Well, he wanted to write down the law and the commandments on these tablets. In particular, Deuteronomy says, written on them by the finger of God. Now, I know, when we see pictures of Moses coming down the mountain, right? He comes down with these two tablets. You've seen them before, usually in Sunday school material and stuff like that, right? And we have in our mind's eye that one tablet has commandments one through four, right? Those are the vertical commandments, right? And then you have, on the next one, commandments five through ten. Those are the horizontal commandments, right? Table, second table law. First table, second table law. But that's not the picture of actually what's happening here. When we're thinking about a covenant, what's happening is, is there are two tablets because there are two copies of the very same thing. When you sign a mortgage for your house, the bank gets a copy of your mortgage and you get a copy of the mortgage. This is what happens when you make an agreement. This is what, you, what happens when there's a covenant. And so what happened here is he's coming down, and all of, all of that information, the, the Ten Commandments as well as the, 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 the Book of the Covenant, all that is contained in, in duplicate in these two tablets. All right? So he's coming down with these two tablets. So there's certainly a purposeful thing that is taking place here. But it's also a powerful call. And now just as we, as we see what's happening here, as far as the intimacy is concerned, I want you to notice the heart of, of Moses' encounter with God. Just notice the words that are used to describe the scene. Verse 15, Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on the Mount Sinai, and the, and, and the cloud covered it six days. Verse 17, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like the, a, dev, a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. As they were at the bottom mountain looking up, they were seeing the glory of the Lord and the fire that was there. And in verse 18, Moses entered into the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, friends, I want to be clear uh, as we've kind of walked through this text. We're going we're to start meddling now, okay? Just wanted to walk through the text. Now we're going to actually kind of deal with things that, that are a little bit more applicational. I want to be clear, and I want to be careful with what I'm about to say, because it may not be received well by many who identify themselves as followers of Christ. And so I would ask for you to think through what I'm saying very, very carefully. Because there can be a bad tendency among those who are Christians to come to a text like this and think to yourself, what I'm seeing happening with Moses is what I want. In other words, you can come to this text and you can see the trajectory of what's happening and here's the people and here's the leaders and here's Moses and oh, I want to have that mountaintop experience. I want to be Moses. But friends, hear this. Moses is not a picture of us in this account. No, 
He's God's mediator and he points to another who is greater than Moses. So yes, because of the blood of Christ, we can now boldly enter the throne of grace, but we don't come by ourselves. We we only come through a mediator. See, in today's culture, people, you know, they want Jesus to be their co-pilot, right? They, They just want this kind of casual freedom to come before God. He's like, no! You can't come casually. Why? Because God is holy. He's magnificent. Look at what we've seen here just in this text. You can't even describe him. And the only way that people can come to God is through a mediator and through blood. And so when we come to God, praise God, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. But you're not walking to that throne by yourself. You have a family connection who's allowing you to meet the Father. And his name is Jesus. He is always there as your mediator. You don't go by yourself. You always come through Jesus. You always come through the blood. Now, friends, that changes things. Because God is holy, and we are not. Jesus paid for our sin. We didn't. We are still sinful, but covered by the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing that we can do to merit coming before God except that we have a mediator. Are you with me? So friends, it's important for us to see that. Now the parallels here are staggering just as you kind of reflect on what's happening in Exodus 24 and you think ahead to Jesus. Just as he relates to Moses. In particular, if you went to Matthew's gospel, you would see Jesus showing himself to be this new Moses who was establishing this new Israel. He passed through the waters. Now, it certainly wasn't the Red Sea. It was the River Jordan at his baptism. And he went into the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights, fasting. He was alone with God, but he was also tempted during that time by the devil. Ultimately, he would mediate as the sacrifice on the cross. And there's more that we could look at here. The point is we have, we have a, a picture in the New Testament of one who is greater than Moses. Let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Hebrews, where as one commentator puts it, it, Hebrews pulls together all of the strands from the sacrifices in Leviticus, the tabernacle in Exodus, Moses on the mountain, and the new covenant to come. It brings it all together and says, we have something even better. And that better is Jesus, the high priest of a better covenant, a new covenant, which will supersede and replace this Mosaic covenant. And then that's, that's chapter 8 of Moses. In chapter 9... The the, the writer speaks of the earthly holy place, the tabernacle, which he had given to Moses on the mountain. That's what we're going to be looking at next. It also speaks of the redemption that comes through blood. And what it is that the author of, of Hebrews is arguing is this. He's saying, we have a much better, greater sacrifice. We don't come by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then in Hebrews 10, we're told that the sacrifice is once for all. So Jesus' sacrifice is once for all, so that there is no need for any further sacrifice or priests. We have no other altar because it was all paid for on the cross. So I want to draw your attention now to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. And I want you to see the echoes and the themes that run from Exodus 24 and land here in this particular section of Scripture. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there's Old Testament covenant language, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
as God called the 74 to do. Let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean like the people of Israel did. Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope just as they said they surely would do without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You hear the echoes there. Let us, let us draw near. This is how we draw near. This is, this is what it looks like to draw near. So do you see the connections? Do you see how what we're doing as the church now is the new covenant expression of the old covenant worship? This is what Michael Horton calls covenant renewal. I want to read what he says. I think it's up on the screen too. He says, whenever we gather for public worship, it is because we have been summoned. That is what church means, ecclesia, called out. It is not a voluntary society of those whose chief concern is to share, to build community, to enjoy fellowship, to have moral instruction for their children, and so forth. Rather, it is a society for those who have been chosen, redeemed, called, justified, and are being sanctified until the day when they will finally be glorified in heaven. We gather each Lord's Day not merely out of habit, social custom, or felt needs, but because God has chosen this weekly festival as a foretaste of the everlasting Sabbath day that will be enjoined fully at the marriage supper of the Lamb. God has called us out of the world and into his marvelous light. That is why we gather. My friend, that's just packed with wonderful truth, isn't it? Now, let me draw your attention back to Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, and verse 24 and 25, and this is a passion that sometimes we use a little bit as a whipping tool. And let us consider how to stir up one another in love, uh, to love and good works, and not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, why weren't you at church last week? Don't you know Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25? Huh? Where were you? What was going on? Okay, that's how we, you know, maybe we don't say it quite like that, but you know, sometimes we, I'll, I'll pull this one out to encourage them to go to church. But friends, there's far more going on here. It's not just saying, why did you come to church? When we meet together, we are entering a covenant renewal whereby we enter into the holy places by the blood of Christ. Friends, this is the corporate gathering of the body of Christ. Having been sprinkled clean, we come to gather around the book of the covenant. And by the blood of the covenant, we share together in the satisfying, soul-quenching Blood or meal, sorry, bread or meal of the covenant. The book, the blood, and the bread. We come as a people to, to come up the mountain together to meet with God. So Sunday morning gathering isn't supposed to be just kind of like, well, I'm, I'll see what I can do. It's part of the necessary dynamic of what it means to be the people of God. And when we come together, it's not just to go through some formality, but it's to come together and, and enter into this covenant renewal. We're saying, God, yes, once again, yes, I see what you're saying. Yes, I have better understanding. Yes, I see how wonderful and beautiful you are. Yes, you're coming into shape. I don't see you fully, but I'm understanding who you are in more ways now. And you are wonderful. And your salvation is amazing. And my new life with you is incomprehensible. And the resources at my disposal because of this covenant are all of these things? Really? We learn all that. We embrace all that. We experience all that when we come together as the body of Christ. So our path to nearness to God comes through a covenant of blood, which we see just splashing through the New Testament and is anchored in what we understand to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, friends, Luke 24, when Jesus is with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they don't know who he is, and he's saying, 
How come you didn't see the Messiah in the, in the scriptures? <laughs> Here we have it. Here's what it's pointing to. We don't come by the blood of bulls and goats. We come by the blood of Jesus, the final once for all sacrifice. Now, friends, let's bring this to a close. The Apostle James brings out an application, uh, applicational echo, I should say, of Exodus 24 when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, this language is all covenant language, isn't it? All right? And, and so God has initiated this, this, uh, this invitation. And it's, it's first an, initiation, an invitation to embrace him as your Lord and Savior. It's next an invitation to continue to meet with him in, growing, uh, in a growing intimacy through Christ as your mediator. So here's, here's some questions, four questions I want to leave you with that really flow out of this text that, that reflect on the things that are being said. Number one, are you overwhelmed by the magnificent magnificence of God? And maybe it should be saying, are you continuing to be overwhelmed by the magnificence of God? Now, sometimes we can be so theologically precise that we are no longer in awe of the magnificence of God. You can name off all his attributes. You could explain them all. Oh, but do you stand in wonder? And are you overcome by the, the more abundant ways that God has revealed himself in the pages of his word? You're not done yet learning about God learning about Christ. I'm certainly not. And we won't until we stand in his presence. Secondly, are you humbled by the kindness of God? God did not have to open his mouth and interact with Moses at the burning bush while the people of Israel suffered under the heavy-handed nature of Egypt. But he did. And he did so in such a way that he knew he was going to bring about their deliverance. And he was going to set them up as a nation with rules and regulations and guidance and leadership for their benefit. That is a kindness. And, and are we humbled by the kindness of God that God would even think about us? I mean, who are we compared to who God is? And yet in his kindness, he condescends. He makes a way. He invites us to a covenant through the blood of his son. Third, are you delighted by the hospitality of God? When God calls you to be a part of his family, you know what it's like. You ever, you ever been a part of someone else's family for a season? Mom comes down and says, dinner is ready. Well, I don't know that I want to come and eat right now. Kind of rude. God says, dinner is ready. I set up a time when you're going to be fed, where we're going to be pouring into the word of God, where we're going to be celebrating what Christ has done, where we're going to be singing praises to God, where we can gather together and renew this covenant over and over and over again. It's time to eat. Well, I've got a tea time at 9 o'clock. Where are our priorities? Do we delight in the hospitality of God? Number four, based on all of this, are you motivated by your covenant with God? Are you living your life out of this covenant? Is it driving you to think differently about the world in which you live? Is it anchoring you to something that you know is sure, the hope that you have rooted in the gospel, anticipating heaven? that changes now how you view life and how you interact with people in life. Does this covenant motivate you? 
My friends, I would encourage you to reflect more on this chapter. Think through about what it is that God is doing and has done and how it pushes us to see Christ in a new and wonderful way. Lord, we ask for your wisdom to take a, a very heavy and rich text like this and to let the elements that are there that you want us to see, Lord, that are so full of your design and your invitation and your graciousness and your majesty and glory. And Lord, to see how that pushes us to see your son, Jesus Christ, as the fulfillment of all those things, as a sacrifice once for all, and to know that we are invited to see Christ as that sacrifice once for all, as the sacrifice who paid for our sins and who invites us now into this new family, all because of the blood that was shed on our behalf. Lord, may we marvel at the magnificence of this gospel that we hold dear and the Savior who's given himself for us. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen.